0: Hello, and welcome to Objective Health. I am your host, Doug, and with me today are Elliot, Erica, and Tiffany. Hello. And today we are talking about the cootie invasion. Very scary stuff. So I don't know uh, if you've been paying attention to the headlines lately, but it's not even just lately, it's been over the past couple of years that it seems like there's a lot of these freak diseases, infections, crazy things just kind of popping up. Um, You know, everything from like these old, old timey like STDs kind of making a comeback or even like other, other diseases as well, not just STDs, but uh, other diseases and other infections kind of making a comeback that are like, you know, medieval age diseases. But then there's other things where it's like not even... Um, things that we've ever seen before, or at least that we know of, never seen before. But it just seems like there's a lot of these kinds of weird things going on. Um, So we wanted to kind of talk a little bit about this. The mysteries, the old-timey diseases making a comeback, and just other kind of strange infections going on. So... Maybe we can actually start off with the STDs or STIs. I noticed when I was in school, they used to call them STDs, but I think now they've changed it to STI for sexually transmitted infection as opposed to sexually transmitted disease. But um, there's been a number of uh, countries that have started to report uh, comebacks of different sexually transmitted infections. ones that we seem to used to have kind of a handle on and they weren't really that common anymore suddenly seem to be yeah make it a comeback like all of a sudden it's like you know syphilis seems to be the big one syphilis all of a sudden it's like it's back and europe in particular is really having kind of a surge in these things and apparently uh iceland is like the leader um they've had yeah good question
1: Later in that and I'm thinking, what is what's going on in Iceland? I thought it was such a serene and tranquil place. It turns out it's a hotbed for syphilis.
0: Yeah. I know. It's weird. Apparently they've had an eight hundred and seventy six percent growth in their uh syphilis cases there. Um whereas Ireland has like is like second place with two hundred and twenty four percent growth, while Britain and Germany have both seen their syphilis rates more than double. So, yeah, I don't know. It's really crazy. It's kind of funny because, I mean, th- this article that we had uh, about it was uh, it was like an RT article. Um, and it was basically talking about how um, th- what they were blaming it on was more or less like condoms have become less of a thing now. Like people, you know, during the 80s, everybody was really, really careful with, uh, with sex and, and protected sex, making sure that they were protected because of the big HIV-AIDS scare. But apparently that's kind of gone by the wayside now, at least somewhat, and people are maybe being a little bit more reckless with their uh, their sexual behavior. So they blame it on that, and they also blame it on the rise of these like dating apps. Well, dating apps, I mean, there's ones where it's basically just hookup apps, Um, And they're saying that that kind of has led to a much more promiscuous culture, which I would agree with. Um, But they so they kind of blame it on those two things that those are the things that really kind of are are leading the reasons why um, we're starting to see these these STIs come back. But what they were also saying is that um, they're saying that two-thirds of the cases reported between 2007 and 2017, um, two-thirds were men uh, men having sex with men. Um, whereas heterosexual men constitute about 23% of the cases and women about 15%. I don't know if that that just means women in general or heterosexual women, but... Um, so it seems to be anyway, it's primarily men. Like even if you um, just look at heterosexual um, sex, it's 23% men as opposed to 15% women. Um, so I don't know exactly why that would be. Maybe they just, uh, we lucky men tend to harbor the infection a little bit more readily than than others, than women, I mean. Um
1: Yeah.
2: It also said in uh, the articles we were reading about the um, not using condoms as much because of the fear of HIV and AIDS being not so prevalent in people's mind. Mm. So that may be why we're seeing a rise as well, because all of a sudden, condoms are no longer being used to prevent these types of things.
1: Well, also along that line, there's the the medication or prophylactic medication that some people use for HIV AIDS. I think they call it PrEP. So people take this medication every day prophylactically to protect themselves from contracting AIDS or HIV. So whether or not it actually works, I mean, maybe that could also be a factor. And uh, people not taking HIV as seriously as they used to.
0: That's a prophylactic medication that works for HIV/AIDS?
1: Well, that's what the claim is, but huh. yeah. There's, Actually, no. Problem. In the US, we have actual uh, drug commercials. <laughs> so there's, I've seen a few of those commercials for that uh, medication that they call PrEP. Hmm. So it's supposed to protect you against HIV. So I guess this will be an unintended consequence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, you know, the crazy thing is, too, that it's not just syphilis that's making a comeback. Apparently, there's been, in the U.S., there's been a national surge in chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Sorry, I already mentioned syphilis, but chlamydia and gonorrhea as well are kind of reaching record highs. Um In 2016, there was 1.6 million cases of chlamydia, 470,000 cases of gonorrhea, and 28,000 of syphilis. In the U.S., that was. So, yeah, they're all kind of making a comeback.
1: uh, People are getting sluttier, or (laughs) I think that's part of it. But is it also because, I don't know, maybe their immune systems are weaker and they can't fight off? Because I'm sure that a person could be exposed to some kind of sexually transmitted disease and not contract it if their immune system can fight it off. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the statistics for the the rise in STIs as well as the rise in a bunch of the other uh, diseases that we're going to talk about, I mean, it's not all just people having sex. I think a lot of it is decreased immunity for some reason. Definitely.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a good point. If you consider just how much the immune system kind of has to deal with on a daily basis, um, things that, you know, in the past we never really had to deal with. And I mean, you know, the, the immune system was basically about pathogens more or less, but there's so many things that kind of set off the immune system now, like even to the point where it's like even food that we eat causes immune reactions in a lot of cases so or like you know the pollution that's all around us and all these different things that lower immunity um, you know um, like uh, cell phone radiation Wi-Fi radiation all that kind of stuff as well like I think that's a good point Tiff. I think maybe that it might not be that these are there's more sex going on or that the diseases and infections are necessarily more virulent it might just be that we are weaker,,
1: mm-hmm. because there's always been like the I would call them the old school doctors, like people who used to write about health back in uh, like the early nineteen hundreds they were really big proponents on how the inner terrain, not necessarily viruses or bacteria that are attacking us. If your inner terrain is compromised for whatever reason, you're going to fall ill. I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing.
0: I think it's a good point. Well, interestingly also, um, just while we're on kind of the topic of diseases in the U.S. in particular, um, what's going on in Los Angeles right now? Like comebacks of typhus, tuberculosis, um, there was one uh doctor recently, dr. drew pinsky um, who said that there is an imminent outbreak of bubonic plague uh, because of the homeless the growth of the homeless population and the failure of the state and local authorities to deal with rodent problems so apparently, the homeless situation is so out of control in Los Angeles right now that you know. They're they're all living on kind of on skid row. There's piles of garbage everywhere. There's human waste everywhere, and it's causing a rat problem that's out of control, or rodents in general, and that's causing a rise of all these crazy diseases. That, again, ones that you know, when's the last time you heard of anybody who had typhus or tuberculosis? Mm-hmm. Like in a a Western country, you just don't hear about it. Um, But apparently, even over the last year, the homeless population has risen uh, 12% to nearly 60,000 people in Los Angeles. 60,000 people living on the streets in Los Angeles. Like, that's a solid size of kind of like a medium-sized town.
1: Yeah, and when you say, like, piles of garbage... I don't know if people have a pretty, like a big picture of what that means because I've looked at some YouTube videos and it's like blocks long, covering the whole sidewalk, going into the street of just garbage. They'll clean it up. Of course, that has to be a public outcry before they clean it up. But yeah. these huge piles of garbage attracting all these rats, and that's the problem because allegedly, Typhus is uh, transmitted by uh, fleas that get on the rats and then they bite the people. So there's all this garbage and this debris, and it's not just the homeless people who are coming down with this. No. Working downtown LA, one of the, I guess she was a lawyer who worked at City Hall, she came down with typhus.
0: Yeah. Apparently. This might
1: actually be Maxine Waters' district. I think it is.
0: Yeah, I think it is.
1: Well, you, Maxine? <laughs>
0: well apparently I they're calling that area now the typhus zone. Like it's actually got, it's got that as its nickname now. Where do you live? Oh, I'm in the typhus zone.
3: <laughs> I think it's understandable um, that things would spiral down into this kind of condition. Cause if you think back to now, now I'm no expert in kind of uh, the history of, of disease. When it came about, but from what I understand, the basic knowledge is that okay, many of these different kinds of diseases, which were transmittable via things like rats, <laughs> um, they're more common in um, a couple hundred years ago when we didn't have things like sanitation, when we didn't have sewage systems, when you know you had open sewers on the streets when there was kind of mass poverty, et cetera. And so it seems like us in Western civilization have moved past that, but now we're going back towards that in many of the cities. And it's not just the case in Los Angeles. It's the case in Paris. It's the case in San Francisco. It's the case in London. London, there is an epidemic of um, so-called, you know, Diseases that we have eradicated, people are starting to get them. Tuberculosis. This is becoming way more common, um, and it seems to parallel quite closely with um, this kind of rapid increase of uh, or decrease of, of of quality of life for uh, certain groups of people. You know, homelessness is is on the rise. People are shitting in the streets. I mean, Paul Joseph Watson has done several videos on this that people actually in Paris don't want to walk in certain areas because there's too much poo on the floor. Like, (laughs) um, There seems to be very serious health consequences of this and I think our natural revulsion for fecal matter you know, it's like a biological, intuitive understanding that, okay, when you come into contact with waste, then that's a bad thing. But when you have the governors and the council members and the heads of these cities investing more of their resources in transgender, liberal, ideological, bloody policies. Which no one really cares about, and then they actually deprive the people of the city the, living in the city. They deprive them of basic things like toilets and, you know, toilet rolls and medicines and things. It's like the natural outcome of something like that. Mm-hmm. That's my impression, anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's. Uh, I think that's a very good kind of point. Like,
1: maybe this is kind of like a top-down situation. I mean. The policies, like you were saying, Elliot, the, the policies, the corruption, the people in government not really caring about their constituents, all of this leads to uh, the homelessness, the poverty, which causes the overcrowding in the cities, and the tent cities, and then that leads to the pileup of garbage and the pooing in the streets. So it's not like any of this can be looked at outside of... Or just in isolation, I think that if you look at society as a whole, I think we're disintegrating in multiple ways, and this is just a physical health aspect of the general disintegration of cultures across the world.
3: Yeah, and as they say, you know, as above, so below. But there's also that that kind of aesthetically, when you see junk on the street piles of junk in you know in a really modern city uh, a wealthy city piles of junk feces on the floor homeless people drug addicts crime it's like perhaps that's a, like a, an external manifestation of mm-hmm. of what is happening on a collective level you know mm-hmm. either loca- locally or collectively you know at least in the west um, so yeah, it's interesting how that kind of plays out. But it's funny because actually, what you're saying about that, there, Tiff, the, the systemic corruption and the um, the real um, the lack of care that these elites have for the the kind of populace as a whole, um, that is going to come to bite them in the bum eventually. Because the people in these cities, the, the homelessness is going to continue to grow. Very likely, the disease rates are increasing. And it's like disease doesn't really uh, specify who it gets per se. You know, there is, of course, you know, the innate kind of immune aspect to it. So, okay, if you have a healthy, robust immune system, then you might be better off to protect against these things. But if you've got a disease, something like typhus or Ebola in Los Angeles, Something you know, some kind of epidemic, then that's going to take out um, a lot of people potentially.
2: Well, and things like TB have been around, <clears throat> excuse me, for a long time. Uh, I I grew up in San Francisco, and it was prevalent in the homeless back in the seventies. And a, a big part of it is you know spreading through breathing and microbes and whatnot, but it wouldn't take a whole lot of effort to just have people tested and to you know, try and, and deal with the situation. But as you were saying, Elliot and Tiffany, it's like those people are just kind of pushed aside and then tell somebody like the lawyer in Los Angeles gets sick, nobody really cares. But there there can be ways of addressing it so it doesn't continue to spread through the population.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe cleaning up all that garbage would work just a thought I don't That'd know be
1: smart, at least
0: <laughs> yeah, totally um I know that they were talking about fumigating um a lot of the the city buildings like they had fumigated a police station or something like that that had been fined because it was so infested and mm-hmm. um I think there were a couple of other kind of city uh city owned buildings where um you know city employees were working and stuff like that where this this woman was working who who ended up getting typhus so but that just seems like kind of band-aid solutions like honestly you can fumigate a building but if right outside there's giant piles of garbage like it's probably not gonna stay clean for very long it reminds Mm -hmm. me of actually when i was first uh moved out of my own i was a student and i lived in an absolute shithole of an apartment building and there were roaches. And what they would do is they would come in and they would spray for roaches in one part of the building. So all the roaches would run to another part of the building. And then they'd just come <laughs> back again. They'd go to spray another place and they'd just come back to the other place. Like, you know, they'd come in and they'd spray our part of the building. We had to leave for like, you know, a day or something like that. And then we'd come back and we'd have like a couple of days of no roaches and all of a sudden they'd be back again. It's the same idea, mm-hmm. like, you know, unless you get to kind of the root cause of the problem, you're just gonna you're gonna have these pests show up again and the it's not going to do anything about this disease
2: and the same is with rats you know the same exact a- applications of you know eliminating one way they just move from building to building and you know when you think about people being quote-unquote activists and you see i don't know if you folks have seen this whole pressure to clean up all the plastic in the ocean And that's a great thing, but why aren't people, you know, especially in a place like Los Angeles, I mean, there's over, what, a million people, maybe even more, maybe 8 million or something, that they wouldn't be these, you know, grassroots organizations that are like, hey, let's spend our Saturday dealing with the trash in our city.
0: Well, they (laughs) they probably don't want to because they'll end up with typhus. (laughs) Or tuberculosis. Apparently, in 2013, they actually identified a new strain of tuberculosis that was circulating among the uh, the the um, homeless population. So it was like a brand, basically, a brand new version of uh, tuberculosis. It's
1: the LA strain of TB.
0: I guess so. Yeah, mm-hmm. the fancy Los Angeles version of uh, tuberculosis.
2: <laughs> well, believe it or not, they do have a. You know, a test and a prick, like a, it's not an immunization, but a if you test uh, for tuberculosis in your lungs, then they are—they uh, can give you a skin test, you know what I mean? And I don't know, do you know,
1: Tiff, what they treat tuberculosis with? Is it—is there a uh, treatment? I forget the use? specific name of the antibiotic, but it turns your pee orange. But a problem with treating tuberculosis, especially if you're homeless and- maybe you're using drugs or something, you have to really be compliant with that. And it lasts for uh, several weeks at least. So if you're not going to take your antibiotics over the course of several weeks to a couple months, then you're not going to get cured from the TB. Got
0: it. So, yeah, compliance would probably be an issue there.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, crazy. What else can we talk about? How about the plague of Lyme disease that seems to be stretching across the entire world at the moment? Um, Yeah, Lyme, it seems like Lyme is kind of everywhere. And while the officials won't kind of recognize that there's any such thing as chronic Lyme disease, they say that it's only um, an acute condition, excuse me. It's just an acute condition and that a course of antibiotics takes care of it and then there's nothing to worry about um whereas what people are experiencing and what many um lyme literate mds are actually um documenting and talking about is that the, the infection can become chronic and it is much 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 worse when it becomes chronic um
1: but there's some health officials who won't even admit that chronic Lyme disease is a thing.
0: Yeah. Including the CDC. Invest-
1: yeah. Yeah. There was an investigation into it as to why. And a lot of there was a lot of conflicts of interest turning up. Either they uh, some of the people on the panels. That were deciding on this chronic Lyme disease, whether it or not. Some of those people had links to test kit manufacturers for Lyme disease. Some of them were linked to pharmaceutical companies. So it's all a big mess, but I, I don't understand why the CDC would seem to be so against that. I guess the same thing like we did a show on Morgellons disease back before we came to YouTube. So the CDC doesn't want to admit that Lyme can be a chronic problem, just like they don't admit that Morgellons disease exists. And I always wonder, like, what would the, why would the CDC not want to admit to a disease being prevalent? They're all about diseases. I mean, that's their whole thing. Uh, it seems like maybe they can make some money off of it. They make money off of lots of other things, but you know why? And then there's uh, these whispers that, you know, maybe Lyme disease has been weaponized. Yeah. When you consider that, maybe that is one of the reasons why the CDC doesn't want to cop up to the truth about Lyme disease. I don't know.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that the, the doctor who originally is said to have kind of discovered Lyme, um his name was bergdorfer i believe and that's what the borrelia bergdorfer was actually named after uh, which is the name of the 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 infection but the um it was interesting to read that he apparently was a bio bioweapon specialist mm. yeah but like he actually like specialized in creating or kind of researching techniques um, to use kind of biological materials or life forms in the form of bacteria and things to actually use as a, you know, to use as a weapon against enemies. Uh, I guess if you know that that could be anyone and actually kind of neutralize neutralize your targets using using like a bacteria. So that's the kind of stuff that they were researching, right? Mm-hmm. And, um and then you've got the the widespread denial on the part of kind of mainstream medicine conventional medicine and health policy that this doesn't even exist yet there's up to 300,000 cases which are diagnosed every year and there are people who who are literally completely sick with this disease and not many people even believe that they have it yeah
1: well, one problem with that is that the Lyme disease tests are highly inaccurate. Like when you read about Lyme disease, I always say, oh, look for that bullseye rash. But less than half of the people who come down with Lyme disease actually get that bullseye rash. Yeah. And then the testing, the tests are often inconclusive or they uh, give a false negative result because I think that they, uh, they source. The the test from for the test kit they sourced the uh, the bacterium from one tick and they got it down to like one specimen, but it came from a tick. It wasn't like Lyme that had infected someone else. So they're testing all these new cases against this one specimen, and it doesn't even apply to all these people. Like if you're in Europe and you come down with Lyme disease and you take a test in the U.S., it might not even detect it.
0: And vice versa. Well it's funny because that bullseye rash, like that the thing is, one thing that is also kind of um controversial and not uh not widely disseminated, but um a lot of doctors are actually saying that you don't you don't only get Lyme disease from tick bites. Like the mainstream Mm -hmm. perspective is like the only way you can get Lyme disease is from a tick. You can't get it from another person. You can't get it from, you know, your pets or anything like that. But that's actually turning out to not be true. Apparently, there has been, there was a study that had showed the strong possibility that Lyme is actually sexually transmitted or can Mm -hmm. be sexually transmitted. They did a study. um, I don't remember the details exactly, but they were looking at kind of uh, married couples um, and they would find... Uh, lime in the semen or vaginal secretions of the couple that were identical. So I mean, obviously they had kind of passed from one person, or it's it's very likely that they had passed from one person to another. You can also get it from urine. They have found the spirochetes, like the the bacteria, in urine from like pets. Um, or feces of pets so if you're kind of cleaning up after your pets you might actually get them and you can actually get it from pets as well i mean if a tick jumps from from your pet onto you but that's still technically through a tick but but i mean the point is that that they don't really seem to know very much about lyme disease um the fact that they they think it can only come from from a, a tick is obviously wrong um or I shouldn't say it's obviously wrong, but it's likely wrong. I mean, the the virulence of this disease um, and where it's found suggests that it is not only um, from tick transmission.
2: And for those that do get, that that remember, a lot of patients don't even remember over 64% being bitten by a tick, but the ones that... um, do there's over thirty different pathogens that can be co-infections with the Lyme's disease as well, and they don't they don't respond to the standard treatment of antibiotic application. Those co-infections. So again, kind of like we we're talking about in the beginning of the show, it's this. I'm wondering if it's this breakdown of the immune system and what maybe people normally would be able to fight it off but now as you were saying in the beginning Doug, that you know their immune systems just have that little window of opening and these 30 other possibilities break down the body as well,
1: hmm. well
0: the, i mean the other thing is too if if they well maybe just to back back up a bit there there was um um, a representative, Chris Smith, um, who actually, what was it? He was um, asking the Department of Defense to investigate the possible involvement of the Department of Defense, biowarfare labs, in the weaponization of Lyme disease in ticks and other insects from 1950 to 1975. So he actually did this, like, officially. He's kind of, like, asking them for this information. Um I'd say, like, if they actually were doing that, and he's, he's basing a lot of this on a book um, that was called Bitten, uh, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons by uh, a gentleman named Chris Newby. Um, and they actually interview that guy, Dr. Bergdorfer, is that his name? Um, mm-hmm. Who was a bioweapon specialist. So um, basically, if, they, if this actually was something, and it looks like it probably was... Um, then what's to say that Lyme disease wasn't actually created in and of itself? Like, that the Mm -hmm. disease itself wasn't an invention? Because apparently it's quite similar to syphilis, oddly enough, which we were talking about at the beginning of the show. So maybe it's just genetically modified syphilis that they put into ticks to infect us all.
1: Yeah, uh, I think one of the... the pathologist who studied Lyme was saying that because he was hearing about like uh, primary and secondary and tertiary phases of uh, Lyme disease that kind of mirrored all the symptoms of primary, secondary, and tertiary. syphilis, And the fact that the spirochetes of Lyme disease and syphilis are like cousins, it just seems like a huge coincidence.
0: I wonder if they basically were making this or experimenting with it as a way of kind of attacking the enemies of the state and some got out of the lab or something along those lines. Or who knows, maybe they decided to turn it on their own population. It it actually wouldn't surprise me.
2: Wouldn't they think about the long-term effects of something like that, that they're not immune as well?
0: They never do
2: i mean maybe they went after the preppers you know people that live in the forest and don't have a lot of urban development around them and you know don't go outside i don't know
0: maybe you know while we're on the kind of tinfoil hat subject we we could talk about there's another tick-borne illness that actually makes people allergic to meat and i remember when this kind of first was coming about um, it was a couple of years ago when, when this, there, there were rumors of this kind of circulating, but it turned out to actually be a thing. And I remember there was a lot of people kind of in the, the keto paleo community who were like, Oh, they're, they're doing it on purpose. They're like, they're trying to stop us from, from eating meat and being ketogenic and all this kind of stuff. You know, it sounds kind of crazy, but still at the same time, maybe they're like, no, the ketogenic diet is a pathway to transformation. We got to, uh, we <laughs> got we got to, we got to. We got to Mute that. We got to nip that in the bud. What can we do? Oh, I know. A meat allergy. We'll just stick it in this
1: tick. I don't know. Who can say? But, you know, there are crazy people in the world and there are forces at work that we can't really fathom. So, I don't know. There's lots of possibilities, at least for me.
0: Yeah. I think so. Sure. Um Well, what else can we talk about? How about treatment resistant fungal infections?
2: <laughs> Yay. So, <laughs> <Please>. so
1: <laughs> no way.
0: Yeah. So apparently um there's been a lot of kind of press about, um, antibacterial resistance, um, and antibacterial resistant bacteria that basically there are these bacterias like MRSA or any numbers of other ones that are resistant to antibacterials. It's like they have developed, um, uh, the ability to not be affected by, um, antibacterials. Well, apparently the same thing is happening with fungals, fungal infections. Um, There are a number of funguses, fungi, fungal infecting agents that are no longer responding to antifungal drugs. Um, And there are a number of people out there who have these fungal infections that um, are basically not, they're not able to treat them. They can't do anything about them because they're completely resistant to these um, antifungal drugs that have always worked in the past. There's some speculation that this actually isn't from an overuse of antifungal drugs like it has been with the antibacterials, um, but that it actually is because they use antifungals to treat food crops as well. And that by having those um, sprayed on the food crops, then you're kind of getting a little bit every time you eat some. um, So that ends up kind of lightly exposing some of these fungi to um, these antifungals, uh, which is how they basically build up resistance. So it might actually more than rather than like blaming the uh, the medical cartel on this one, it might actually be because of farming.
1: Yeah Well, and the
2: ability for these types of microbes to adapt, so if you're being exposed to them in your gut and you know you have to continue, Adapting it would make sense that like what would it be a small what's a good example of a fungus? toenail fungus is one that I think of like yeah. you know this this chronic overgrowth, and uh, they just keep adapting and and pretty soon it's going to be like super fungus, you know, just like going back to the agriculture model of super weeds you know you keep using this stuff on the food and then it gets into people's body and people are adapting
0: well apparently yeah well apparently like it um it's particularly bad with lung diseases um because apparently the lungs are a good place for a fung, like certain types of fungus to uh to actually take hold you know it's warm it's moist um kind of perfect conditions for like a fungus and if untreated, those things can actually form, like, tumorous masses in the lungs. Um, you know, cause... it, it can kill people. Um, and also, uh, people who have asthma are quite uh, susceptible to these infections, particularly if they're using um, the cor- the inhalers. Um, Because that uh, apparently uh, is not so good for the immune system. So it brings the immune system down um, and then the the fungus can actually take hold. So a lot of people with asthma um, are in danger of getting these uh, treatment resistant fungal infections.
1: I think that a lot of people who are immunocompromised, whether it's because of overuse of steroid asthma medications or because they had cancer at some point and had chemotherapy or if they have any kind of autoimmune disorder. I think um, a lowered immune system plays a big part in a lot of these diseases that we're talking about. Yeah. But not at the beginning, but I think this is particularly true of these fungal infections. Because a lot of the people that die are like in um, ICUs and hospitals.
0: Well, what else, guys? What other crazy diseases are right around the corner threatening us all?
1: Well, there's treatment-resistant Candida. Is there? (laughs) Yeah, I think they found the first case in Japan in 2009, and then it spread to places like, uh, I think, South Africa, some places in South America and the U.S. Mostly people get it in hospitals, which are really gross places, So they have, uh, you know, the beds in the hospitals. And once a patient discharges, they're supposed to come in and totally disinfect the bed. But there's a lot of nooks and crannies and stuff in those hospital beds. And, of course, you have to consider, like, how well the staff is cleaning or what products that they're using. And then sometimes, even with the best techniques, these funguses or fungi develop resistance to... uh, any kind of normal cleaning methods. So, yeah, if you can avoid being in a hospital, try to stay out of them because they're really dirty places.
3: Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it kind of seems ironic that where you go, the place that you go to <clears throat> when you're the most vulnerable, physically speaking, when you are the most sick, and you are the most vulnerable to any kind of superbug. Or killer infection. It's ironic that that place is, <laughs> is actually the place which harbors the most deadly infections in mm-hmm. today's age. But what can you expect when you adopt a, a, a kind of um, a framework uh, by which you? like this whole notion that actually attacking bacteria with antibiotics is is the be-all and end-all and actually there's not going to be any negative consequences of that further on down the line. It's like the people who originally, the doctors who originally started using antibiotics were warning against this. They've been warning against this for a very long time saying, Save these antifungals, antibiotics, antivirals, save these things for you know end stage um, last resort kind of scenarios where you 've tried everything else and nothing works. Mm-hmm. Save it till that because you are going to see resistance, and no one listened, and in fact, they just went ahead and start started prescribing copious amounts for things that weren 't even bacterial bacterially related right mm. Yeah. so you got a viral infection ah, i have some antibiotics yeah and it's just like okay well now this is the logical progression uh, bacteria fungi you know they are much like any other species they will you know detect what's going on in the environment and come up with very They'll network with one another because that's what we do. They'll network and they'll basically devise a way to overcome that that barrier and actually proliferate um, under under different conditions. And so, um, yeah, it just seems like we're probably going to be seeing this a lot more.
0: Yeah, and just with the the fungal infections as well, the the antibacterials. I mean, using those in in our food, like in cattle and pigs and chickens and all that stuff, just feeding them antibiotics, not because it's necessary, because they have an infection or anything like that, but it makes them grow bigger and faster and fatter. So that's another place where we're getting exposed as well.
2: And also this idea of being too clean all the time. And I, you know, that the hygiene hypothesis, the, Obsession, like I get with the hospital, like needing to sterilize and whatnot. But even in everyday life, and and even with uh, starting very young with children, like being really almost obsessive with cleanliness in the sense that, you know, washing with the triclosan, antibacterial soaps, you know, everything is sterilized and not giving the body an opportunity to kind of adapt to normal things in the environment. And that may be fungus, that may be things that, you know, that that could proliferate, but not going to those extreme measures to kill it off. And it, it just seems like kind of the theme of our show is how really out of balance everything is and uh, how it's just going to extreme levels. And I'm not telling people not to wash their hands, but (laughs) it's just just being obsessive to the point like with the Clorox wipes and you know what I mean? It's hard to say. I don't know if I'm getting my point across. I just feel like uh, it becomes really extreme And uh, I think people uh, I know you shared this before, Doug, maybe even a previous show here that we had on YouTube, but that that just fear of of anything that's not sanitary.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. It does seem to be a bit extreme um, how the this kind of obsession with cleanliness over cleanliness
2: I mean, we had an article, uh, that we carried on SAT. It was back in 2012, but it's called the hygiene hypothesis and can be too clean harm your health. And, um, one of the, there was a study done about the suppressed immune system of adults. And they were talking about how the immune system learns how to fight illness and disease by being exposed to it. It then builds defenses. And when, it, when we don't allow that to happen by normal exposure to microorganisms, then the, the immune system doesn't know how to fight off these things. And then we can't be vulnerable and I, and I think we're seeing that in these very subtle ways with the the outbreak of candida you know resistance and fungus resistance and I mean a lot of different things even in an environment we're seeing it with these red tides and um, outgrowth of algae and you know making people sick rest in their respiratory system. I mean it just seems like everything is so screwed
3: yeah. Yeah, flesh-eating bacteria, like necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah, which basically just like tears someone up from inside out, and just, you know, can devour the skin and the flesh on their on their leg in the space of like six hours. So someone goes to sleep and wakes up with barely any leg. (sighs) Like that. Like that is that is actually what's. What's happening, and like on the, you know, the East Coast, the US, Florida, um, you know, this is actually becoming like a quite a common thing now. You know, it wasn't wasn't necessarily reported until a couple years ago, and now it's becoming really quite common, particularly on the East East Coast of the US for whatever reason. But there have been cases where people have literally gone out walking, gone out for a stroll on the coast walking through some shallow waters, warm waters, say on the Florida coast, and um, come back and they've got a small itch or like maybe a pimple or what seems to be a bite. And then they'll come down with a fever that night. The next day they might be rushed into hospital because they've gone into some kind of um, metabolic crisis kind of thing. And then um, And then they'll be pronounced dead sort of within 24 hours, 48 hours, because they've contracted this flesh eating disease um, that's basically, you know, eaten half of their chest. And if I don't recommend anyone doing it, but, you know, for those who are interested in the physiology, you know, go ahead and type it in onto YouTube or onto Google or something and you can see it. And it is real. It's like um, these kinds of infections um, that can't be treated. Unless you get it very quickly, um, and so one of the recommendations is to kind of, uh, if you do come up with any kind of graze, cut, or bite um, after, you know, being in water or whatever like that. I mean, you don't even have to be in the water; you could just be walking on the beach. It makes it a bit difficult because most of us get cuts and scratches on the beach. But they say that if you develop a fever after that or anything. You know, you develop any strange kind of symptoms, which um, are not kind of don't seem related to the what would normally occur. Then you know, get it checked out, and yeah, because um, it because it could potentially be uh, something quite nasty. And it's I, I'm interested into why on earth this is happening now. You know, I'm th- I'm thinking is it probably a conglomeration of factors? So so you've got like the chemical aspect, which is you've got a bunch of crap being released into the ocean, basically. So you've got plastics, you've got chemicals, you've got stuff which is, you know, industrial pollutants going up into the sky, they're coming down into the rainwater and polluting the the sea, um, the oceans, you know, killing the fish and probably destroying the whole microbiome. So I'm guessing that there's some factor there involved, perhaps allowing you know some kind of pathogen weird bacteria it's changing the balance in some way and that seems to be actually quite detrimental to humans so there's that aspect to it there's also the emf so it's like okay do we know how bacteria respond to that i mean i wrote an article on it a couple of years ago and it's like when you expose certain types of bacteria to electromagnetic radiation then they some of them become antibiotic resistant some of them actually develop certain resistant strains um and become more pathogenic uh kind of more damaging to human beings that is a possibility as well is that what's happening are they picking up on that then there's also the kind of extraterrestrial factor of there's been you know over the past few years not so much uh in the past year or two but in the past decade we've had massive increases of um, you know fireballs meteorites these kind of things coming into the atmosphere um, and it's like well we wouldn't even know how many of those dump into the ocean and there's a couple of scientists in the past who've basically posited that well these things can harbor certain viruses and things which when they're introduced into the like Within the Earth's atmosphere and actually um, kind of plumb it down into Earth, they can be like extremely pathogenic for human beings. That they can wipe out entire civilizations potentially. Um, so there's that, and then there's also, you know, are these bacteria kind of just responding to the fluctuation in solar activity, which is also happening? So stuff's going kind of crazy on the on a level of. Physics with the Earth, it's like things are changing in some way, no I don't know if anyone knows, but the weather is going crazy, and people are going crazy as well i mean we we talk about this all the time, so it's like <laughs> why wouldn't bacteria go crazy? Yeah, you know it's only expected <laughs> I think so it's like. I'm kind of excited to see what we what's what's gonna come of this stuff. How how far is it gonna go? Are we gonna have like mutant bacteria like (laughs) turning people into zombies and stuff? I mean that's it's my thought always goes to zombies too, Elliot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: zombies. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Well I mean there are you just gotta sit back and watch the show, haven't you? And try to do what you can to boost your own immune system hopefully so that you don't become a zombie
0: yeah (laughs) well maybe we should talk about that how can how can we deal with the fact that there are all these crazy freaking diseases and stuff i mean you don't you don't want to be like super paranoid about this kind of stuff and become one of those people who basically walks around like a bubble suit you know has a mask on and all that kind of stuff because they're afraid of all these the possible exposures to these diseases and things But, I mean, we've mentioned it a couple of times how um, the state of one's immune system kind of is really what's going to dictate whether or not these things um, affect you or how badly they affect you. Um, So what do you think? What can can we do to boost our immune systems?
1: Mm. (laughs) I'd say that. One thing that you can do, not necessarily what you should add, but something that you shouldn't do, is uh, take vaccines. Because, and I'll go back to syphilis here, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of old books written about how They were trying to eradicate smallpox or get rid of smallpox and vaccinate against smallpox. And they ended up causing syphilis with the smallpox vaccine. Hmm. So you never know. When when you start injecting foreign matter into yourself, you never know what's going to happen. So that is one way (laughs) to avoid any kind of... uh, towards your immune system unnecessarily.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's better to kind of build up a natural immunity to these things anyway, Um, Mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, you know, everybody has to do their own research and figure it out as far as vaccines are concerned. But I think you make a pretty persuasive argument, Tiff. Um, But yeah, I think, um, you know, just in general, uh, eating the right foods, getting enough sleep, um, those are actually really important as far as as um, as far as keeping your immune system in, in functioning order, um, not getting too much exposure to electromagnetic radiation. Um, you know, all the things that we talk about pretty much on every show, uh, those are things that you can work into your lifestyle that will naturally kind of keep your immune system functioning properly. Like just, you know, missing a night of sleep or something, you know, or, you know, not getting enough sleep for enough consecutive days will have a definite effect on your immune system. Um, you know, mm-hmm. sleep people, it seems to be kind of like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like something to be um, <clears throat> lauded to be able to go with as little sleep as possible. It's like, oh yeah, I'm so busy. I'm getting no sleep. And people are like, oh yeah, good for you, man. You're working hard. Mm-hmm. But really, it's like you're really damaging yourself by doing that. So, yeah, I think those those uh, kind of simple lifestyle factors are, are important steps to kind of keeping your immune system in proper functioning order.
2: Yeah, I'd like to add to the importance of reducing stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we did a show on it last week um, because, as you were saying, Doug, that lack of sleep, then you eat bad food, the stress component too. I mean, you can just worry yourself – till your immune system shot as well. So really addressing stressors in your life and uh, making sure that they don't get the best of you in that sense. And, you know, even kind of on a light note, going back to that hygiene hypothesis of not being so worried about everything being clean all the time. And, you know, just, I don't know. It's It, it can really, it can really... Uh, Exhaust you mentally and then physically as well
3: yeah, so just for bu- boosting um immunity there's um there's a couple of things which can help as well so um, there's some pretty good studies on vitamin D actually, so there's lots of uh lots of kind of mechanisms. Which have been laid out as to why vitamin D is is kind of useful in terms of like it's upregulating certain types of genes which protect your cells from these pathogens and stuff. And theoretically, like it makes sense. But actually, th- there is some human trials using vitamin D and finding that it does have beneficial effects on their um, on their kind of inflammatory markers, on their recovery time, and that kind of stuff. So if you do come down with some kind of infection, um, you know, I think some extra vitamin D might help. Ideally, if you're getting enough sunlight, if you're eating kind of enough animal fats and that kind of stuff, then vitamin D should be in a good place. Um, There's a herb, one herb it's called, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's called, is it astragalus?
2: Astragalus,
3: Astragalus. Astragalus. yeah, yeah, yeah. So astragalus has typically been used um, to boost the immune system in the past. I think you would use it as soon as you felt that you were coming down with something, um, and I'm not sure if it can be used um, in any of these really kind of horrible conditions like TB. Yeah. Um, I know that I know that high dose vitamin C can be and has been effectively used for that. <laughs> Ideally, like IV vitamin C, if you can get hold of that. Um, but apparently, astrag- astragalus can also be given in IV, and it's pretty I good know. when it's in IV. So yeah, if you have access to IV, you could have vitamin C and Astragalus. <laughs> but wow. uh, yeah, it's it's generally generally good for that. And then there's also other things like zinc, zinc acetate and stuff. But ideally, if you're eating enough red meat, then I think you should be in a pretty good position. Yeah. Um as yeah. long as you're def- as long as you're not a vegan, then um yeah, you don't want to be a vegan and, and come into contact with some of these nasty uh, infections because then that's not gonna be good. But then if you get something like MRSA on your skin, yeah, let's say that you go to the hospital, you come down with MRSA, you have like the skin infection. Um, We've covered this on the show, but there's a couple of accounts of people using like kombucha topically. Yeah. I would probably go for colloidal silver, iodine, um, kefir, kombucha. um, Yeah. 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 <laughs> just off the top of my head. Anyone else think of anything that might be helpful?
0: Yeah,
2: I think just taking those foods like uh, fermented foods, sauerkraut, kimchi, building up those micro the microbiome, you know, so your gut can fight off, especially the internal types of things that go on. Uh, as you were saying, kombucha, not a big fan of how that tastes, but you know, oh,
0: <laughs> <I like> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: but fermented foods, mm-hmm. great, great, you know, kind of information overload in the fermented food area, but you know, finding those beneficial microbes in your food.
0: yep well I think that's uh we've covered quite a bit there that's that's uh that's probably our show unless uh you guys did you have anything else you wanted to add about anything freaky diseases immune boosting
2: yeah no, I'm, i mean there's there's so much and there's so much yeah stuff
0: we didn't even talk about <laughs> Ebola so <laughs>
2: We'll have to save it for another show. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for joining us on this episode of Objective Health. Uh, We will be back with another show next week. Don't forget to like and subscribe below. And we will see you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye.